Well, good morning. We're in a, a series of messages entitled, What If? What if? And the idea of, of this what if is what if all of us collectively at the same time really begin to live out all that God has called us to and all that God wants from us and all that God commands us to do, what would happen if all of us together at the same time really move forward with what God's called us to be and who God has called us as a church to be? What would happen? What if? What would the world look like? What would the landscape of our society look like? What would change in us and what would change in our church? And last week we kicked this off with a message entitled, What If Everyone Gave? Now, you know, a lot of times we talk about giving in church, people start, they start sweating, they get a little uncomfortable, and they're like, yeah, yeah and eventually they're going to talk about this, you know. But the, the idea of giving and the idea of generosity is really near and dear to the heart of God, and it's something that God talks about quite a bit in Scripture. And one of the things that we looked at last week was in the average church in America, 80% of the people, or 80% of the work and 80% of the money is given by 20% of the people. So we asked ourselves the question last week, what is the other 80% of people that are actively involved in church, that are attending church, what is it that they're doing? They're not giving of their time, they're not giving of their energy, they're not giving of their resources, they're not giving um, monetarily to the church. What are they doing? And we said, imagine what would happen if those statistics all of a sudden became reversed. Imagine if 80%. Gave. And we talked about our own church's uh, circumstances and our statistics of where we're more like 30%, some 30% give like 90-something percent. So we're doing about the same as the average church. And we said, what would happen in our church's circumstances if that number even doubled? If instead of it being 30, it was 60%. And again, we're talking about giving of our tithes and our offerings, our time, our energies and our efforts, imagine how much more that we would be able to do. And we talked about in the book of Exodus how the children of Israel were about to um, uh, build the tabernacle or God's house for the first time. And God had called on them all to bring offerings. They brought gold. They brought precious jewels. And, and some of them used their, their livestock to make the thread. And we, we read through all the ways that people got involved in giving to that particular project. And it's the only time in Scripture that we actually see that towards the end of that project that Moses had to stand before the people and the Bible says that he had to restrain them from giving any more because so much of an abundance had been given to the project. And we said, what happens when everyone does their part, when everyone gives of their time, their energy, their money, and their resources. What happens when everyone does their part? There's an overflow, there's an abundance that then God uses that to make us the conduit and the catalyst of his blessing to the rest of the world. Because if we have an abundance, through that abundance, it's not for us to build our own storehouses, right? That abundance is in for us to bless and to be a blessing. So we talked about, imagine... If 70% of our church was giving of their time, their energy, and their talents, and their finances, imagine what impact we would be able to have. Imagine if you start doing, those of you that are math people in here, I'm not very good at math. I'm not going to lie. I'm not. I'm terrible at math. Yes, my son is good at math. I am not. He's almost reached the point in level in school where I can no longer assist him in his math. And he's in second grade, if that tells you anything. Uh, 
But imagine exponentially what more we could do. How we could impact our community. How we could impact our state. How we could impact our nation. And how we could impact our world. Imagine how many more youth volunteers that we would have. How many more teens that we could reach. Imagine how many more kids volunteers. How many Sunday school teachers. The list goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. If we all gave. So this week, we're looking at this, this whole picture of stewardship of, of what God has called us to and how we're supposed to as his people then in turn respond to that. And this week, what if everyone loved? What would the world look like? What would our society look like? What would our church look like if everyone loved? So I want to kick off this morning with some great quotes about love from what I think are the best experts on love. Now, I see some of you looking confused. You're like, oh my gosh, like, who does he think is an expert on love? Kids. Here are some of my personal favorites. Quotes on love or about love and marriage and things like that from kids. And these are some of my favorites. When asked, when is the best age to get married? Tommy, age five, responded, after I'm done with kindergarten, I'm going to find me a wife. Oh, Tommy, Tommy, Tommy. (laughs) When asked how important looks are in love and romance, Gary, age seven, responded, it isn't always just how you look. I mean, look at me. I'm handsome like anything, and I haven't gotten anybody to marry me yet. (laughs) Gary's time will come. And then you get some of the kids that, that honestly, like, they, they bring this to a different level. There's a level of seriousness and a, and a level of innocence to their understanding of love that I really think mirrors what the Bible says and what we're going to talk about this morning. So I'm going to give you a couple of the kids that, honestly, we could probably read these three quotes, close the book, pray, and go home and give you enough to think about this morning if you put this in proper context of what God's love is. And I think if we could learn to love the way kids see the world again— we might be able to actually change the world. So here's the first one. To love better, start with a friend you don't want to play with and play with them. Marissa, age nine. Think about that one for a minute. Adults, think of the friend that you don't want to play with and play with them. Love is what is in the room when you stop opening presents and just listen. Jordan, age 10. Think about that as Christmas is about to come up. What really is important and what our kids really take away from things. Sometimes it's not the toys and what's under the tree and the presents. Sometimes it's the atmosphere they pick up on much more of than it is the what. It's the married little old man and woman who are still friends even after they know each other so well. (laughs) There's a lot of ways you can take that one. (laughs) Those of you that have been married for a while, maybe you get that a little bit of a different way than some of the other ones. When someone really loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know it is safe in their mouth. Any of you in here that profound this morning? Don't raise your hand. You know, it's amazing how kids, what they see, what they pick up on, how they view love. And really, if you notice, a lot of the things that these kids are talking about as what they understand and, uh, as love is, is a lot of it is really outwardly focused and not inwardly focused, which is really what the Bible mandates. And a lot of us, as we get older, our love really starts to turn more inwardly. And we're more concerned about how things 
affect us personally rather than how they affect the people around us that we're supposed to love. In his book, um, Origin of the Species, Charles Darwin stated this theory called survival of the fittest. Right? And it's this notion that in the world, especially in the animal kingdom, but as things evolve, right, and, and evolution in his theory takes place, as things adapt and they move, that the survival of the fittest, the animals that adapt the best, that are the strongest, are the ones that are going to survive, and the weakest will be eliminated. Right? So if an animal has a better, you know, vision at night as a hunter— they're more apt to survive as the animal who doesn't see very well at night as a hunter. So in other words, the universe sort of eliminates the weak and promotes the strong. And so Darwin, uh, he, he talks about this in, in Origin of the Species. And what's amazing, though, is, is as, as futuristic and as, and as supposedly um, you know, civilized as our society is supposed to be, we actually live our lives much the same way with this survival of the fittest mentality that the weak has to be pushed out and the strong will survive and those that are willing to, to push and, you know, to push. And we see this happening at work, at home, at school, like all over the places where we go. We see this self-promotion, this self-interest, this self-fueling desire that pushes everybody else out of the way, especially those that are in our way from obtaining our goal or those that are weak or those that are slower. And so we see this, this landscape in, in our society that has really become much more primitive than we claim to be because this really contradicts what God wants us to do. When Jesus began his, his kingdom and began to lay the foundation for the church, um, in Matthew chapter number 22, there's a great passage of scripture that where this, this uh, young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what is the greatest commandment? What's the most important laws for me to keep? You know, and a couple weeks ago we talked about that, you know, God doesn't care about you checking off things on the list, right? But that's what he wanted to know. What are the things that I absolutely have to check off the list in order to be saved? And Jesus said, it's easy. The law is simple. Two things. Number one, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And then he says in the next verse that the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor, what, as your? On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So basically what Jesus is saying is, is that the entire Bible, right, when he talks about um, the commandments, right, the law, the Old Testament, all the things that were written, the Pentateuch, that the, that the Jewish people so delicately held on to. He says all of that, that's already been written, and he talks about the, the prophets, that which is to come. In other words, in the New Testament, the entire thing, God's kingdom can be summed up in two things. Love God and love people. And those two, you can't do one without the other, and you can't do one without the other. They are closely tied together, and they are of equal importance to God. That we, First of all, that we love God, and then secondly, that we love people. And that's really hard to do sometimes, isn't it? In, in the landscape of our society today, we see this message just constantly being talked about how we have to be more tolerant, right? As a people, as an individual, you need to be more tolerant. When it comes to your faith, you need to be more tolerant. When it comes to how you view people in the workplace, you need to be more right? Tolerant. It's all you see over and over and over and over again. 
And in fact, it's getting so blatant that right now in, in the state of California, um, their state legislature is, is getting ready to vote on a bill that is probably the most important bill that you've never heard of in your entire life. And this bill could single-handedly change the entire game for the Christian church in America. And this bill states this, that if your church, your entity, or your organization that has a 501c3, and they're really targeting church ministries on this, if they operate anything outside the four walls of their church, their services, and they do not socially conform to be more tolerant of things like human sexuality, the definition of marriage, gender, or anything else that they deem as a discrimination of how a person identifies themselves, then that ministry or entity will be stripped of their 501c3, and they can no longer be considered in a ministry category. And so what they're doing is they're using this, obviously, for since the founding, really, of this country, the, the church has operated as, as a not-for-profit organization. You realize that, like, right? We don't do anything here, like, for profit. We're not like, you know, we don't have stockholders that we're like, woo, look at what we're doing. You know, that, that's not the church, right? Everything that the church that comes into the church basically goes back out in ministry to the church. That's the whole point. There's, there's no, you know, coffers and you know, golden parachutes and all that kind of stuff that you hear about. The church is a not-for-profit organization. So what's happening is, is they're holding this over the church's head, saying either you conform, either you become more tolerant to what we think you should be more tolerant to, or you're going to have to start paying taxes as a business, which would cripple hundreds of thousands of churches across America because they wouldn't be able to keep their doors open. So this sort of pay-for-play scheme that they're now putting the pressure on the church says, are you going to be more tolerant? And so then we as a church, like, we have to decide, like, what, what's more important? The truth, the 501c3, how, how do we do this? And this whole message of toleration, right, is really backwards from what God calls us to be. God does not call us to be tolerant, and I'm going to tell you why. Because you can tolerate someone and not love them. And probably, we won't ask for a show of hands again this morning, but all of you have someone in your life that you have to tolerate. It could be a family member, it could be a friend, it could be a neighbor. The list goes on and on of the people that you might have in your life that you have to tolerate, right? Now, because of that toleration, you don't necessarily love that person. There's no outflow of, of love and emotion. What happens, it, let's say for the sake of conversation that it's your neighbor this morning, right? And you go out after the trash man comes to get your can. And you get far enough from your house to where your can is, and you notice that person is there. How do you respond internally? You go, oh, next time I will look out the window. But what happens then, you have this engagement, you have this conversation, or you have this, albeit however brief it is, interaction with this person, and the whole time you don't want to be there, you don't want to talk to them, you don't have anything to do with this, there's no love, there's no friendship, there's no nothing there, what are you doing? You're just tolerating. 
waiting for it to be over. And that is not who God has called us to be, is the people that just tolerate. Because you can tolerate someone and not love them. You can tolerate somebody in the condition that their life is in, and the position that their life is in, and, and absolutely have no care whether or not they better their situation at all. But if we do what Jesus called us to do and we love people, then the Bible says that through that love, we cannot leave them where they are. We have, we have a mandate and there's a love, there's an obligation when you love someone that you want to see them from where they are to where God wants them to be. And so this, this whole message and ideology of toleration is really about one thing, and it could all be summed up like this. Hey, you keep to yourself— and you do whatever you want to do, and I'll keep to myself, and I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and we'll just sort of smile and nod in passing, which basically destroys the whole ideology of what human civilization, relationship, and community is all about. Because we no longer care about that person's needs or what that person's going through or that person's life. And we're really starting to see these things um, lived out in our society. So how did Jesus respond and what does Jesus call us to do? And I think um, this story that we're going to read through um, briefly this morning really captures the heart of God and what God wants from us as we move forward. And it's a story found in John chapter number four. And for most of you, it'll be a really familiar passage of scripture. Uh, This story is simply entitled The Woman at the Well. Okay, so let's read through this um, briefly this morning. John chapter number four. Uh, beginning in verse number seven. And it says this, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Then the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, was saying it to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well to drink from himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the waters that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. On this mountain... And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now, here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to people, come, see the man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So we see this picture of this woman and she's at this well and Jesus is there and his disciples are out getting food. And that really sets up the story. They have this great conversation about water. Now, the interesting thing about this and the part that, that we often kind of miss, right, in this is, is this part of the story. Number one, most of you probably know that the Jews didn't like the Samaritans and the Samaritans didn't like the Jews. Now, when I say that they disliked, that's a very big understatement. They hated. You know how the, the Palestinians, the Arabs, and the Jews, how they constantly are doing this? Kind of the same thing. They hated one another. In fact, Jews would not go into Samaria because they viewed the Samaritans as lowly. They were like dogs. They were second-class citizens. And they wouldn't even walk foot into their territory. They didn't want to. Even if it meant they had to go a longer route to get where they were going, they would not go through Samaria because that's how deep their hatred ran. Now, the interesting thing about this story is if you read prior to and leading, and leading up to it and a little bit after, you see that Jesus and his disciples are on a journey. Now, rather than taking the short route, the route that makes sense, Jesus goes out of his way to go through Samaria. So it'd be like if they were trying to go to Chicago. I don't know why Jesus would want to go to Chicago, but he's going to say he's going to a Cubs game, all right? For all you Cubs fans here this morning, right? This may be the year. I'm pulling for you. Um, So Jesus is on his way to Chicago, but instead they decide to stop in Indianapolis first and go that way. Because that makes perfect sense, right? No. Right? You would go the short route. You would go that way. You wouldn't go into the enemy territory, right? Like maybe he went through St. Louis. Maybe that's a better analogy. And they found a Cardinals fan sitting at, you know, Bush Stadium. I don't know. Like we're a divided crowd this morning. But you get the point. Like he went way out of his way to encounter this woman in Samaria. Now there's two social issues that Jesus creates by doing this. Number one, he went to Samaria in the first place as a Jew. And that was a big no-no. Number two, he's at the well. Guys don't go to the well in this day and age. They don't. That's what the women do. They carry the pots, they go get the water, and they bring it back. The third issue here is Jesus is all alone with a woman. That's not his wife. And a woman with a really bad reputation in town. So these four social sort of issues that Jesus has with his actions, that he goes out of his way to have this encounter. Why? Because I believe that Jesus is trying to show us a point. It doesn't matter the background. It doesn't even matter the position and the station and where people find their lives. Jesus is showing us through his parables and also through his life that it is our duty to go out of our way to try to find people to reach and to try to find people to love. And it was his love that carried him through Samaria that day to have that encounter with that woman. And we even see in in, uh, verse 27, it says that his disciples came back and they're like, what is he doing? Why is he talking to that woman? 
What is he doing? They were like, it said they marveled, right? Which is one of those Bible words for means they're like, what is he doing? This is crazy. Doesn't he know that, um, this is so bad, right? This is what the disciples are thinking. They're thinking like from PR, like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to spend this? Like, we're in Samaria already. Now he's at the well and he's talking to this woman, right? But Jesus decides to have a divine encounter. What happens, that woman begins to go throughout the streets and throughout her town in Samaria, and she begins to say, come and see. Because Jesus knew that in that moment, in that that divine encounter, that her life would be radically changed, that she would be different, and that she would become a witness for all that was going on. So we have to develop a love for people, not just the people that we want to love. There's someone at your work, in your neighborhood, maybe even in your church, that you need to begin to love. How do we truly love? How do we love? We can say, what if everyone loved? But first of all, how do we love? What does that mean? What does the Bible teach us about what love is? And to truly love, we must, as a people, learn to look past what our natural inclination, our nature tells us, and begin to think with the heart of God. See, each and every one of us as humans, we have, this, we have this, this thing inside of us that's going to take everything that happens and it's going to bend it back inwardly, right? How does this affect me, right? How does this affect me the most? Those of you that are married, sometimes you get into an argument with your spouse or you have a little disagreement, whatever terminology you want to use. And usually, what's the, what's the thing that happens the most in those arguments that we do by nature? We begin to say, well, I feel, and I think, and I want, and I need, right? And we start the eyes. Because what we're doing is we're taking the situation that's happening, and the only thing that we're focused on is it becomes inwardly focused, and we're only worried about how does this affect me? Well, I don't like what you said about me, and I don't like how you think, you know how it goes, right? You've all been there. Don't look at me like you've never had this in your house. Because we have this natural bend in us to be selfish and to only worry about what's happening with us. And the Bible teaches us and tells us that true love doesn't bend inwardly, that it always bends outwardly. And it looks at the situation in the eyes of the other person. And that's what we have to get better at. So how do we do that? What does it look like? There are 14 principles we want to talk about. You're like, oh my gosh, we're going to be here all day. I promise we're not. 14 principles that are found in the Bible that teach us how to love. If you have your Bible, it's 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. We're going to begin reading in verse 4. It says this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. That hopes all things. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. 
To the end of that, he says, love never fails. So let's look at these 14 attributes that we see of love that are found in this passage of Scripture and see what we can glean from this this morning and how we take this and we relate it to our relationships with our family, with our friends, with our spouse, with other people, with our neighbors, with our strangers. The first thing is this. Love, it says, is long-suffering. In the message translation of the Bible, it says that love never gives up. It is essential in love that true love be everlasting and always believe in the potential and seeing with the heart of God. Love is long-suffering. You see, the thing that's amazing about all of this is this is really the way that God loves us. This wasn't some like nifty little thing that Paul came up with. That he's like, oh, that sounds good. I'll write that down. Right? This is the way that God, if you really read through it and you, and you see throughout Scripture and you know how God has moved and worked in your life, this is how God loves us. This is how God sees you and this is how God loves you. And so this is how he's telling us that we're supposed to love those around us. That love is long-suffering. That it always sees and it never gives up. Second thing is this, love is kind. The Message Bible, again, says this. I love this. It says that love cares more about others than self. In other words, love is constantly thinking more of others than it does for itself. Number three, love does not envy or want what others have. Love isn't concerned with titles or positions or background. Love simply wants and hopes for the best. Love doesn't envy. Number four, love doesn't puff itself up. Love doesn't boast. In other words, love isn't concerned with what everyone else thinks. It doesn't need to brag or gain recognition for its actions. Love isn't seeking applause, in other words. Number five, love doesn't seek for itself. In other words, it's not a me first. Love is all about the other and not the self. And we see that love defined in God sending his son to die in spite of all of our garbage, in spite of all our past, that we see that love isn't selfish or selfishly motivated. Number six, love is not easily provoked or isn't quick to anger. Love is wise and listens and teaches rather than being full of wrath. You know, and it's easy in our relationships, especially the more closely you have a relationship with someone, sometimes our, our love can quickly turn to the emotion of hate, the emotion of anger, right? Those that you love the most, the old saying goes, can hurt you the most, right? And they can set you off. They know your buttons to push. And the Bible says that, that love is not easily provoked. It's not... It's not easily going to a place of anger, but it's patient. Next thing it says is, love thinks no evil. Love thinks always on the good and not in the bad. And this is that place where love thinks no evil. This is where that, that really that place that God sees you. And, and at your core, you're evil. I know you probably want to hear that this morning. It sounds bad, but you are. You're evil. You're a sinner. You're a disaster. You break God's heart every day. That's just the reality of who you and I are. But what God's love sees is not that. He sees who you are, the potential that you have. So he's not thinking of the evil. He's always seeing the potential. Love isn't pleased with the shortcomings of others. 
In other words, when someone fails, love isn't happy because it now gets an advantage. Love seeks to comfort in this situation. Have you ever had someone that, you know, they failed at something and it kind of made you happy that they did? You don't have to raise your hand, but if you're honest, you've probably been there at least once this week. Right? Those I told you so moments, right? Like a good analogy of this is the, the wife who's upset that the washing machine is broken. And the husband says, I'll fix it. And she's like, yeah, right. Call a repairman or buy me a new washer. Right? The husband goes downstairs and he's clanking and he's working and he's fixing. And the washing machine doesn't get fixed. And in the process, he breaks the water line and floods the basement. Now, what happens in this situation? I know in all of your households, the wife is like, oh, darling, that's so unfortunate. Let me grab the vacuum and get right to work, right? You did your best and you tried so hard. I'm so proud and thankful that you would be willing to try to fix the washer, right? That's what happens in your house, right? Oh, I'm sorry. That was the Donna Reed show. I'm sorry. My bad. No, what happens is, this is what the Bible is talking about. This is that opportunity. Like, I told you you wouldn't be able to fix it. And now we have to do this. This has to happen. And this has to happen. And this has to happen. And then what happens? Now, love has found fault. And it's gained an advantage. Or, a lot of us do this in our relationships, too. We keep score. Oh, well, you did this to me. Well, I did that to you because you did this to me. And if you remember, you did this and this and this and this and this. And guys, you're always going to lose this fight. I'm just going to tell you. Because we don't keep score that well. Right? And so every opportunity of someone failing is another point in our corner at work. You have a coworker that suddenly, like... They're like, oh, I got this project. And you're like, oh, this guy can't do this project. I should be doing this project. Or I should be doing that. What happens is they don't do it right. And what are you like, boom, score for me. One more advantage. I'm, I'm, I'm positioning myself for better things now, right? And the Bible says that love doesn't act that way. Love doesn't keep score. It's not pleased when someone else falls and fails and falters. But it's there to comfort. It's there to comfort. Say that with me. It's there to comfort, not keeping score, right? Not keeping score. It says, love seeks only the truth. Is number nine. Love seeks only the truth. Love takes pleasure in the flowing of the truth, and the truth is the most important thing to love. Next, love bears all things. Love puts up with everything. Love doesn't keep score. Love endures through pain, tears, trouble, trauma, anything else that you can put in that list. Why? Because it's love. Most of you in here, in your relationships, with your families, with your friends, there's come seasons and times where you have to walk through difficulties and you have to get through hardships in order to make things work, right? To get through a tough place. 
And that old adage of divided, you fall and united, we stand really holds true in those situations. Um, in first service, we were talking about this. We were talking about this in the, in the aspect of marriage, of how we have to go through seasons and issues and, and, um, and controversies and problems sometimes in our relationships, and we have to learn to overcome them and get through them. And so we did a little test to see who had been married the longest. And we got to 65 years, and that was like basically, I don't know exactly what the number was, but it was 65 or more years that a couple had been married. That's pretty amazing, right? And I told him, I said, even if they were 100 years old, which they're not, okay, they weren't 100 yet, that they had been married longer than they had lived apart. And I said, you don't get to that station, you don't get to that place with, yes, without there being controversy, without there being some of those things, but you don't get to that place where you don't get there where you've navigated through troubles and situations and problems together and that you've learned that you have to unite, right, to get through these seasons. And that's where that love bears all things, no matter what storms, no matter what things come our way. Love has the potential to bear it all and to come together to see it through. Love bears all things. Next, it says, love believes all things. Again, love is always searching and hungry for truth. Love hopes for all things. Love always hopes for the best for others. Love endures. Love keeps going through it all until the end. There's nothing that love cannot withstand. True love fights through everything. And it says that love remains. In other words, the last one is love never fails. Now, one of the things I want to, when it comes to, it's easy to talk about this in, in the aspect of the relationship between a husband and a wife or your family. But really and truly what, what God's talking about in this is not how we relate to our family and to our husbands and, to our, and, and wives. It's certainly a part of it. The bigger part of it is how we relate to the world around us, how we relate to our neighbors, to those people that are hard to love. God is telling us that we're supposed to apply that these 14 principles to those people, not just the people that you live with or the people that you, you know, that you share um, some form of DNA or, or, or relationship through marriage, right? And family, that's not what this is about. That's easy to do, even though we all have those relatives that are tough, right? That kind of stuff comes, oh, we have to fight for that. We're going to fight for that. No, the, these 14 attributes aren't just reserved for that. These are for the people that live next door to you that you don't like. This is for the person in the office down the hallway that you don't like. This is for all of those, those other relationships, the people that you run into at the grocery store. This is everyone. This is how God is calling us to see. And what you'll find is a lot of the people, when it comes to the people that you have trouble loving, what you'll find is, there's a common denominator usually in the people that you have trouble loving or the people that you have issue with. And you know what that common denominator is? You. A lot of times the people that you have problems with, the problems that you actually have are yours. Because what we do is, is we're going to use the analogy of a giant snowball. I know it's just depressing because winter's coming, but we're going to use a snowball anyways, even though it's warm, right? What we do is we start to think negatively about someone, and we start to build this. And what happens is the snowball begins to get bigger. It begins to get bigger 
and it begins to get bigger. And the more we roll it and the more stuff that we add to it, the bigger that snowball gets. And what happens is, is we suddenly lose sight of the person behind the snowball. We no longer see that person anymore. The only thing that we see is this case of evidence that we've built up in our own heart and in our own mind. And the Bible in Philippians talks about this. And what we do is we build this this case on really flimsy evidence that we've created in our own minds, in our own imagination. And the Bible tells us to take those thoughts and those imaginations into captivity. In other words, get rid of them. Because what we do is we build this gigantic barrier between ourselves and that other person. And the only thing that we can see is all that negative stuff that we've built in that snowball. And so everything that that person says and does and the way they react, the only thing that we see is we judge it based on the evidence in that snowball. And we're like, told you, I told you, I told you. And what's amazing is, is that all of that stuff that we've created is really about us and not about them because we can't even see what they're really doing anymore. All we see is what we created for them. And so what you would, it would be amazing in your life if these people that you have problems with, if you would stop doing that and you would start piece by piece getting rid of that snowball and making it smaller and smaller and smaller. What's amazing is the negativity and the things that you're judging them on and the reasons that you're having these issues, those things begin to get smaller. And what happens is the human, the person behind it, all of a sudden becomes more in the forefront of the picture. And you begin to see who they truly are. And you begin to see like, oh, like after a while, they're really not that bad after all. Oh, that person's really not that bad. Well, you know, that was... And, and suddenly, we start building a case and we start building this positive. This is where the Bible says love believes and hopes and endures. It's the same way God saw you. Imagine if God judged you by all of your garbage. This mountain of trash that you have in your life. I'm so glad he didn't judge me by mine. And the garbage I'm still throwing on my pile every day. And you are too. Imagine if God judged you the same way that we judge most of the people around us. All he would see is this giant trash of this big snowball and be like, this person's not redeemable at all. But instead, God doesn't doesn't view us that way. God sees through all of that and God sees the hope and he sees the potential and he sees the purpose and he sees the plan that he created for you and that's the motivation for his love is because he sees the the potential and so he does everything that he can to see that potential actualized in your life and that's what God's calling us to do with the people around us is to break down the walls and break down the snowballs that we've created and to really start to see the people behind it. Author Mish Levine put it this way, love one another and you will be happy. It's as simple and difficult as that. You know, it's amazing if you look at the current status of our society. What do we see popping up more than than anything right now other than the election garbage? And please, let's not talk about that today. We've seen, all seen and heard enough of all that, I hope. But what do we see? We see things that are dividing people. And we're seeing this mountain of negativity built in front of people and people groups. And all of a sudden, racism is a major issue in our country again. How? How is this happening? 
It's like 20 steps forward and 130 backwards. Because everyone is not looking at the people behind the proverbial snowball anymore, that we're only looking at the mountain of evidence that we continue to create. And so what that does is that drives division between every aspect of our society. It drives division in the church. It it divides uh, division everywhere in our social relationships. Now all of a sudden, um, you know, this idea of of feminism and, and some of this other stuff has taken over as, you know, now men and women are divided again. And there's this notion that it, there's all this negativity and all this stuff that's built up. And we cannot see people anymore because all we see is this giant label. And once we have fixed that label to someone, all of the mountain of garbage that goes with that label gets attached to it too. So you wonder how someone can walk down the road and see a different person of a different race. And suddenly make judgments and make accusations and make a viewpoint and make a stance about that person. Because they don't see that person anymore. The only thing they see is the mountain of label and the mountain of garbage that we put on them because this is what it is. This is what we've been told it is. Or this is what we believe it is. Or this is what our experience is. And this is what the negative aspects of this are. And we have fixed that to them and that's all we see. Suddenly there's not a person behind that. And the list goes on and on with every division that you can see happening in our society today. And what God's saying to us as a church is, what if everyone loved? What if all of us collectively at the same time decided to love together? What if we pulled together in the same direction and we really started living out these 14 principles of love? What would we do? What would our our church look like? What would our world look like? We have to love God and we have to love life and love people, not just in here, but it has to extend outwardly. If we all really love that way, then we would tear down all those barriers. We would tear down those labels. We would tear down all the negative stuff that we put in front of people's lives. And we would start to see the person that has real issues, that has struggles, just like you and I do. And we would see the pain and we would see maybe some of the hopelessness in them and maybe we could point them to a place of hope in Christ Jesus. But we can't, we can't do that. We can't bring people to an understanding of who God is if we're viewing them through this mountain of label that separates us. The only way that we can do that is if we learn to see through that and see them the same way that God sees you. Because The fact of the matter is each and every one of us look pretty bad if God judged us by our own circumstances. What would God say about you if he used the same judgment qualities that you use on others? What would he say about you this morning? How would he label you? What would he place in front of you? But what's amazing is is that the label that God places in front of each and every one of us, all of us, that he gives us opportunity to is, is through what his son did on a cross— that died, that basically erased every label. And the only thing that God sees is no longer the garbage. The only thing he sees is a sacrifice that his son made for you and I to live free and to be full of life. That's what God sees. And through that, he can see the potential and the hope and all that he created you to be. God, we thank you so much, Lord, this morning for that hope, for that love. God, for everything that you have 
you've given to us and that you want from us and for us. And God, with so much on the table in our society today that we see just a constant division and a constant portrayal of, of labels and of, and, of, and of placing things in front of people, and it's just not who you called us to be. God, I pray that we would be a church, that we would be a people, that we would position ourselves to truly love the way that you have called us to love, to truly be who you have called us to be, to take these attributes and not just let them be something clever and poetic that Paul wrote in Scripture, but God, that it would define who we are and how we see the world around us. God, we thank you for all of this. God, we ask, Lord, that you break our heart, that you let us see the world the way you see it. We begin to view people with the hope and the potential that you created in them and that, God, through our love and being your hands extended, that we can have an impact in those lives around us. God, we thank you so much for that, Lord. God, we rejoice that we have the opportunity, Lord, that even when we fail and even when we're falling short and even when we're not living the way that you called us to live, that, God, your word says that we can call upon your name all will be better. All will be right, God, that you can reposition us again back where you want us to be who you call us to be. God, I pray this morning you would start it in us right here collectively as a church. God, that we would tear down those walls and see people the way that you see them. Thank you in Jesus' name. As the team sings the song this morning, let's just reflect inwardly on the position of our hearts as we're getting halfway through the series now of what if everyone gave and what if everyone loved and how our world would change if we just did what we were supposed to be. And I think everyone in here wants that to happen in our society, but it can't happen just by having a clever thought. It has to be intentional. It has to be a position and a place that we posture ourselves to move forward. So I ask as they sing this morning that you would just reflect on your heart and your life and what God is speaking to you.